Welcome to another episode of Mandatory Redistribution Party. Today we're joined by Phil Burton Cartledge, a sociologist at the University of Derby, whose research includes the crisis at the heart of the Conservative Party. Now, normally our episodes are a bit abstracted from Westminster politics and the news cycle. Firstly, because that's a job that's done a lot better elsewhere by other people who studiously follow the boring end of politics for years on end. But ultimately, it's because radical left thought doesn't really offer a lot of hope that the, the parliament media industrial complex is a route that can ever really allow ideas like ours to take root. As the election is showing with each passing tick of the news cycle when they're sticking the boot into incredibly mild social democratic reform. If free broadband gets described as communism on the BBC, then I wonder what they'd make of abolishing capitalism and private ownership. That being said, because we're not absolute monsters, we're obviously going full cans out for Corbyn this election, and this interview is full GE 2019 chatter. So, sup on a fresh tinny, and let's get stuck in. How do you think it's all going? <laughs> uh, thanks, uh, thanks for having me on. Um, how the Labour campaign is going? Well, when we look at the polls, it seems to be pretty much... Uh, at the moment, obviously, by the time you hear this, things might have gone south a little bit. Um, but there seems to be a repeat of what's happening in 2017 at the moment. We're seeing uh, Labour's vote is starting to consolidate, is starting to improve. And what's more interesting about this time than last time is the fact that the Tory lead isn't as substantial as it was at this stage in 2017. So it really is a case of it all being to play for. So you think there's, a, there's room for a lot of optimism still? Yes, uh, I know it's quite hard to be optimistic because we've just had two years of really dull, really um, most appalling procedural shenanigans in Parliament and also the constant barrage of assaults on Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party. Uh, but what we're finding on the doors, and this is something that never ceases to amaze me whenever I go canvassing, is how people on the whole are genuinely well disposed to see you. I mean, on social media, you find those um, one or two stories about canvassers being abused. Yeah. But no, on this occasion, I haven't been abused. I have been threatened with a knife once, not on this campaign, many years ago. Um, but um, yeah, people are generally quite happy to see you. They don't shout. The worst that anyone ever says to you is, sorry, I haven't got time, or sorry, I'm not interested. On the whole, people are quite... 
but are quite chilled to see you. So um, when you start to see movement on the doors as well amongst people that you don't expect to support Labour, that is quite heartening as well. And uh, when we was out yesterday, we saw a little bit of that. As someone who has very limited experience with canvassing and has just started mobilising for this campaign, I am very surprised by... So firstly, all my information comes from anonymous AVI people on Twitter, so I'm already disconnected from the real world in my own way. But the, the attack lines of the press that seem to be dominating what the national conversation is doesn't really seem to be the national conversation when you speak to people at their doorstep. No, definitely not. And we saw this week how movement in the polls has meant that for the number one issue of this election is no longer Brexit, but is the NHS. And we're certainly finding that on the door as well. Initially, when the campaign started, we were tending to find people who were saying, oh, you know, voting Tory to get Brexit. And we all have those archetypal so-called lifelong Labour voters. Mm -hmm. Like I'll give you an example. There was one uh, guy who I, I spoke to said, oh, I'm lifelong Labour me, but I haven't voted Labour since you all messed up the economy, i.e. he hasn't voted for Labour since 2005. (laughs) (laughs) So those are the kind of people that uh, we're, um, you know, we're losing. Well, in fact, no, they're pretty much already lost and there's not a great deal you can say to them. But in terms of the actual feedback that you're getting off, off the doors, what people are saying is their priorities are very much not the kinds of priorities that Boris Johnson thinks are the mm-hmm. people's priorities. So he talks about Brexit, and yes, we do find Brexit on the doors, but we also find concerns about the NHS. We also find concerns about jobs. We find concerns about local issues. So, for example, in Stoke, where I'm from, there's been a big scandal where the Tory-run council, that's right, Tories run the council in Stoke-on-Trent. They had... Um, um, they entered into a relationship with a, uh, a so-called green firm called Solarplicity to fit solar panels on a number of council housing and private residence housing. And there was all kinds of problems. Some of it wasn't connecting up properly. Some people had issues with damage to their houses because of faulty installations and so on. And that's been a big scandal. And one of the, uh, the Labour candidates, Mark McDonald in Stoke South, he's been campaigning hard on this mm-hmm. ever since uh, he was selected for the seat well over 18 months ago. And that has been a big issue on the doors as well. And the Conservatives, they haven't got an answer for that because one, they're overseeing the scheme. And secondly, their uh, Conservative representative in Stoke South, a guy called Jack Breerton, who, um, to my eternal shame, is a former student of mine. He was a Tory when I taught him. He's just basically been referring people to the CAB rather than dealing with their casework. Those kinds of issues that come up from people's everyday lives can cut through the, the media narrative, if you like. The media throw up a great deal of fog, but ultimately people are going to look at their own circumstances, look at what they experience the most about everyday life, and those issues are going to inform how they see politics. And that's what we're seeing in this election. And also I'm discovering a lot. People have these like lifelong relationships with the Labour Party that are incredibly complicated. Like you say, like people say, I'm Labour to my bone, mm. but they haven't voted Labour in like 15 <laughs> years, um, especially in the North. Being Labour is just something you're born into like, almost irrespective of your voting pattern. You find out whether Labour to my bone means, oh, I liked Blair, or Labour to my bone means I liked Harold Wilson. Mm. Just feel like people never have strayed too far away from 
taking an interest mm. in the Labour Party and that relationship's always there to be rekindled. Mm. Yeah, it's just about trying to find the kind of issue that can make someone think twice. And this is, you know, this is obviously very difficult. But so, for example, the, the guy that I was speaking about earlier who not voted Labour since 2005, you know, how, getting him to not vote Conservative this time, which is what he was planning on doing, it would be, you know, you're not even night in the pub probably wouldn't suffice. But I suppose in the kind of the interlude of a, a very, sorry, in the interval of a very short doorstep conversation, when you meet someone like that, you've got to find the kind of the form of words or raise enough doubt in their mind where you won't convert them, but you might make them think twice about voting conservative and hopefully, you know, in the kindest, gentlest way possible, suppress their vote. Yeah. <laughs> so, for instance, again, a couple of weeks ago, we um, knocked on this door of this guy who claimed to have been a striking miner. I'll, tell, I'll talk a little bit about him again in a moment. Um, he claimed to be a striking miner and um, he said that he was voting Conservative this time. He said he was going to give the Tories a chance, almost as if they'd not been in power. Give them a chance, years. nine years in. Yeah, yeah. I said, you know, this is exactly what I said yeah. to him. But using all, all the lines, saying, well, you know, you're a striking miner, you know what the Tories are like and all yeah. this. And you could kind of see some sort of cogs turning yeah as you were pointing out all these things to him. At the end of it, he said, oh, I'm still voting Tory. But we could see that you'd put the seed of doubt in his mind. Yeah. And um, hopefully, you know, he'll stay at home come mm. uh, December the 12th. On that particular guy in question, um, I went back and told one of uh, my, my friends uh, back at base about him. And she said, tell me, tell me where he lives. So I told her, she says, right, leave it with me. So she went away. This is a, a wonderful local uh, Stoke activist who's got a very long memory and she's been involved in Greenham Common, Miners' Strike and loads of pretty much all Labour movement um, disputes in Stoke for running back 40, 50 years. And when I saw her yesterday, she said, you know that guy you told me about? Yes. She got her husband there and he said... He never was a striking miner. He was a technician at the pit head <laughs> and he scabbed on it. Wow. <laughs> People feel like they want to have some relationship with the Labour Party that they can sort of mm. bash you over the head with. Like, I'm not just someone who won't vote for you. I was like one of your diehard loyalists. That's and, it. Yeah. And you've lost me by returning to <laughs> socialism. Well, this is a nonsense you find on the doorstep. Sometimes you come across people who say, oh, you know, you need to get back to the working class. You know, the Labour Party has is, is never um, exemplified working class politics more than it has now in my lifetime. Just because the kinds of workers it talks about are not necessarily the kind of Dan Pitt type workers, but yeah. workers who work in call centres, workers who are care workers, workers who work in retail. You know, this is where, the class, this is where working class people are nowadays. Mm. But a lot of, particularly older workers, don't necessarily recognise this. There's that kind of generational divide, which, of course, plenty of pollsters have picked up on when you yeah. sort of see the age splits for voting intention. And I feel like the class divide over who votes for who is completely misrepresented in the media. Mm. Like the whole Conservative Party, we're talking about working people, working people want less immigration. It's, it's your average uh, medium income employee. They're the people that want Brexit. And yet 
canvassing really pulls out a lot of your prejudices mm. when you walk down a certain copse <laughs> and you're like, oh, artificial lawn, these won't be our people. Press mm. a doorbell and the melody lasts 30 seconds. This isn't <laughs> going to be one of our people. And yet, if I walk down like a slightly scruffy street, mm. I'm like, cool, easy peasy, friendly convos. That idea that the dog whistle campaign, that's, you know, Brexit doesn't necessarily just mean immigration issues, mm. but for a lot of people, they became one and the same. Yeah. The idea that that was like a North Heartlands working class issue mm. isn't really playing out. And you wrote, um, you wrote an article for The Independent mm. about how that mythologizing of the working class, actually it's about people, maybe middle, lower middle class, who fear becoming working class, mm. that are really the people who are zooming to the right. Yeah, absolutely. It's... I mean, you have this kind of strange situation where the, the Tories, well, it's not strange when you think about this, when the Tories are in power, they ensure that employment relations or they work to ensure that employment relations are as precarious as possible, that as many people load up as much debt as they can, that people are put in precarious like living arrangements and so on. And the consequence of this, at least for, for people of a certain age, is that they kind of hanker after security they want an end to their insecurity and the Tories impose themselves as a party of security by saying oh look you know here are some scapegoats that you can blame for the situation that you're in and look here is you know we're the party of the nation we're the party of the armed forces all these we're the party of the monarchy we are these you know the party of these kinds of rocks that you can always depend on and they hope that people flock to them on that basis and it works for some people again people people who are particularly old. Mm. What, we've found, what we saw in the last general election and what we'll see in this general election is, as a general rule, people do not vote for candidates or parties that make them feel insecure. So one of the reasons why young people do not vote for the Tories is through their own experience, they know that the Tories make them feel insecure. And likewise, for people who are aged, who are retired or older workers, they feel insecure about that dreadful communist Jeremy Corbyn thinks he's going to come in and you know, collectivise their conservatories and they vote accordingly. So this kind of issue of anxiety, this issue of it's often lampooned economic anxiety, but it's more it's more wider than that. It's sort of a, a state of feeling to use the posh word, the ontological anxiety how you feel about your position in the world. That's what's key in this election. And the Tories are past masters at understanding this. And this is something that I think Labour don't really understand in the same sort of instinctive way. They always try to appeal to people's better natures. Mm -hmm. Whereas, of course, the Tories, the Tories go low, as they say, and Labour goes high. But sometimes you need to prick on people's fears to get them to support a positive programme. So at the moment, I find I can't get a good handle on what the Tory party election strategy is. Mm. I mean, I guess from the last like few days, it feels like the election strategy is a panic. Um, <laughs> but there's a real sort of a real half-hearted but present sort of semi-turnaround on austerity. Mm. They're putting some money back in. Brexit's no longer about immigration quite as much. Brexit's about just having it. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost about being so world-weary of Brexit. So let's mm-hmm. just have it done so we can talk about anything else. Brexit no longer even represents this national pride. Brexit just represents like an albatross around our, our neck. Mm-hmm. So let's let's just have it done. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard to understand what they are trying to appeal to people with. They just seem to be coasting on their past support. There's no major promise to bring mm-hmm. people in, which means these last two weeks are ludicrously crucial because Labour has a positive conception of what they can offer and the the Conservative Party have just got to hope that the election day hits before they can gain too much ground. Yeah. They're pursuing a block vote strategy because they... um, Boris Johnson has defined rightly that the only way the Tories can get a majority is by by appealing to exactly the same group of the electorate that Theresa May appealed to. And so he's repeating pretty much her strategy even to the extent of kind of disappearing from debates, uh, you know, hiding from scrutiny, but with one difference, of course, is of course they went through the uh, the manifesto with a fine tooth comb to ensure there was no hostages to fortune in there. So it's like get Brexit done. And initially, when I was interviewed by Politics Theory other a few weeks ago, and she said that you know, the Tory strategy is all about Brexit, but now, as you say, the the kind of Brexit's faded into the background. And they want to, they sort of want to talk about other things, but they haven't got anything else to talk about. And so they're kind of reverting to how, what the Liberals did in Australia in the general election there earlier this year. There, the uh, Labour Party made a, a series of promises that were quite transformative. It wasn't nowhere near as radical as what Jeremy Corbyn is offering. But you think they came in, they came in with an Ed Miliband style promise about how you know how to fix Australian capitalism and the Liberals just basically promised nothing and just spent the entire campaign picking at Labour's campaign so I think this is what Johnson's trying to do now is just pick at Labour's campaign saying this is too much um, and allowing the media to kind of scrutinise Labour and not scrutinise them so we can see this for example in how um, the the uh, the media jumped on anti-Semitism last week when you had the chief rabbi. Um, coincidentally, utter, you know, entirely coincidentally, I'm sure, even though he uh, released his statement two weeks ago, we saw the ramping up of his denunciation of Labour and how Jews shouldn't uh, vote for the Labour Party for a number of reasons that I'm sure your listeners are familiar with. Um, But at the same time, yesterday, we had both Theresa May, the former Prime Minister, and Johnson unveiling a statue to Nancy Astor, who was ostensibly the first female member of Parliament. She wasn't. She was also a fascist, someone who is anti-Semitic, and someone who was a bit of a fan of Adolf Hitler. And when you kind of compare the two, it's just absolutely incredible. The, the media have just got such a blind spot where the Conservatives are concerned and just, uh, you know, actively help them. BBC do so. Obviously, their friends in the right-wing press do so too. In that sense, we're not on a level playing field. And what the Tories are hoping for the remainder of this two weeks is that they'll get their friends in the press to keep pulling stunts like this, offer more scrutiny of Labour and let their own abysmal plans slip through the net unnoticed so we've seen it with the uh, with the pledge over nurses for mm. instance which is you know utterly absurd you know, 50,000 extra nurses and 19, 18 or 19,000 of them already working yeah. in the NHS that's not 50,000 extra nurses that's 31,000 extra nurses and of course 
No, there's been scrutiny of this, and Susanna Reid on ITV on on Good Morning Britain um, has really gone for the Tories over this. But it's not getting the same level of resonance on on BBC on on the broadcast news at six o'clock news, the ten o'clock news, which of course matter more. And the Tories know this; mm. they they know this full well. For the remainder of this campaign, we'll see this differential uh, coverage where the Tory boo boos might get a little bit of coverage and then kind of get swept up with the carpet because something awful will be revealed about the Labour Party and they'll just bang on about that. Problem is um, that in and of itself, all it does is just form up the Tory vote and just reinforces the age divisions that we currently see in politics because it's going to be the older people that more likely see to those messages whereas the younger people more likely to get their news from social media or through word of mouth through their friends. And so will it do the Tories any good in the long run? Like I say, it will just help form up their voter base, but it's not going to disorganise Labour's voter base. And do you think there are any hidden advantages to um, those times where Labour's policies get scrutinised and therefore if the Labour messaging, even if it's Mm. being attacked, the Labour messaging ends up so central to these broadcasts? Yes. Um, Boris Johnson made a big mistake in in the first leaders' debate between himself and Jeremy Corbyn, which wasn't really a debate as such. Uh, but nevertheless, he kept, he allowed Jeremy Corbyn space on on about five or six occasions to say Labour's position on Brexit is a second referendum with a rene- renegotiated Brexit deal and remain, which of course is when your previous narrative, your previous strategy has been about trying to muddy the waters. Oh, what the hell is Labour doing over Brexit? And all of a sudden, Boris Johnson's giving Jeremy Corbyn space to categorically state what it is. That was a big mistake, I think. And it's probably one of the reasons why he's less keen to to debate him again. It's something that um, I have heard people say from back on the doorstep. They do seem now to have clarity on what Labour's Brexit position is mm. but they um this didn't happen to be up to a friend who just who told me about it but one person like said it to them really conspiratorial like they were embarrassed to be like i think they were like a lib down mm. and they're saying do you know i don't actually think that labor's policy on brexit's actually that mad <laughs> and they're like we don't either and it's like oh right <laughs> um because that was so ubiquitous that this policy mm. was beyond human comprehension yeah um and yeah people can sum it up in a, in a few seconds. Well, we've been talking about uh, at home when we've been knocking about on this. Cat, uh, um, who is my significant other, she was uh, she's saying, I think this is going to be the election of the shy Labour voter. So you've got all those uh, follow back pro Europe hashtag people on Twitter, for instance, who mercifully seem to have disappeared from Twitter during the general yeah. election. That's good. We must have permanent general elections so those awful people. And, and uh, never seen again. How many of those are actually going to follow through and vote Liberal Democrat when they know that Labour is the only way that they can get a second mm-hmm. referendum? And so you start to see some of the kind of more prominent FBPers, people like Femi, for instance. If you if you don't if you listen at home, you don't know who Femi is. Don't worry about it. Or uh, Jolyon Moore. If you again, if you don't know who he is, don't worry about it. Uh, but these really are prominent. Don't worry about it. <laughs> these are prominent Twitter uh, centrist Twitter celebrities, I suppose. Both of them, like Femi, has kind of come out and said, you know, vote Labour. Mm. And uh, Jolyon Moore seems to be kind of concentrating his fire on the Tories more than Labour, and is kind of. Mm, kind of crawling towards or inching towards a 
a pro-Labour position in most seats. So that is quite interesting. They're obviously quite prominent, but there'll be, you know, a dozen or so MPs or something who are going to be um, shy Labour voters. But I'm sure there's plenty of people who identify with Liberal Democrats who would have voted who voted Liberal Democrat in the European elections who uh, would you know are going to switch Labour this time for mm. this for this express purpose. The presence of Boris Johnson as the leader of the Conservative mm. Party is nothing short of terrifying mm. because he's still doing fine in the polls. Mm. And what does that tell you about what's happening internally inside the Conservative Party that he has not only muscled his way to power, but we now know, you know, some people have left in protest, but now the Conservative Party is shored up, the machine's still yeah. running. You know, you cross a sort of event horizon what someone like Boris Johnson can be your new legitimate leader who you all support. Mm. Mm. It, is, it is very concerning. It does worry me. I mean, if, he, if the Tories get a majority, you know, be in no doubt, be, be worried. Mm. Um, but don't despair, you know, join the Labour Party, get organised. Um, but... It's a case of, um, I mean, for a lot of the a lot of Tories, they were quite happy to go with Boris Johnson for the simple reason that they think he's popular. He plays well with certain people of a certain age, and that his celebrity alone will be able to push him over the line. And that might turn out to be the case. Um, but also, it, what it speaks to as well is a certain sort of a decadence within the Tory Party, a certain kind of how the Tory party have broken um, because you know, Boris Johnson is, is lazy, he's feckless. You, know, you just have to look at his, uh, his performance in interviews. He fluffs his lines. He just bluffs his way through everything and he never gets called out on it, which of course is ruling class privilege. But the fact that he is all of those things speaks to a sort of a crisis in the Conservative Party because what does the Conservative Party actually stand for now? Well, it stands for continuation of class privilege, uh, perpetuation of uh, inequalities and, and all the rest of it. Uh, but how it does that, of course, is something is in a, in a way, if you kind of compare it to Margaret Thatcher, for example, one of the things about Margaret Thatcher and her cabinet was, of course, they were quite vicious. Um, they were, you know, quite happy to use the power of the state to wage class war against institutions of the working class. But nevertheless, when you look at the kinds of people that she surrounded herself with, and Margaret Thatcher was, quote unquote, a competent politician. She knew how to do politics. She commanded her brief. She knew what she was doing. Uh, she had a sense of where she wanted to go, and she knew she was able to command the detail. And when you look at some of the people that she surrounded herself with, again, absolutely awful people. But someone like Michael Heseltine, for instance, he's not a fool. He's someone who has ability. He understood his brief. He knew what he was doing. And you compare that to the Tories today, and they're just like career politicians who are there in power for the sake of being in power. They've got no project beyond maintaining the everyday. And I suppose that comes down to the crisis of conservatism because for conservatism to renew itself in the long run, it's got to actually solve that problem, that demography problem. So it's not just a case that the conservatives are appealing more or less exclusively to older people. It's that the conservatising effects of old age are breaking down. The idea that underpins 
the notion that you get the more conservative as you get older is not because you just get older and therefore you become more bigoted. It's about the acquisition of property. You tend to acquire property over time. And so when I look at my parents' generation, both my parents, I think they more or less have paid their, paid their mortgage off by the mid 40s. Um, and so and they were relatively secure in their jobs as well. And they had pensions to look forward to. They had modest property. Now look at my grandparents. You know, they had property despite coming from inner city working class uh, Derby. And look at my brother who has a family of five. He's in Renton. He's uh, 40. Uh, he's never going to get a house. And there's millions of people in the same position as him. So are they going to get conservative as they get older in the same kind of way? When housing, when they're being denied access to the housing ladder, when their pensions are going to be, um, you know, an insult, when they don't retire until they're 75? No, of course not. So how do the conservatives fix this? Well, you could say that um, the conservatives should actually, you know, build some houses or you know, think about lowering the retirement age, thinking more creatively about how they can maintain their system. And one of the things that heartened me about the Conservative Manifesto, if you can put it that way, is they don't have a clue. They don't know what they need to do in order to sort out their problems. And it's not just a case of having the uh, not having the will to be able to sort it out. The problem is that maintaining their current base prevents them from being able to address their medium to long-term problem. Because if they start building loads of new houses, if they start addressing issues around uh, raising wages, sorting out pensions, you know, that goes against some of the interests of their own, own base. You know, who, do, who is the party of landlords in Britain today? Mm. It's a Conservative Party. So they're not about to take action against landlords, whether they're people who own two or three properties or own over 100 properties, because they need that base. They need those people as part of their voter coalition. And so this is a problem that the Tories have. They've created this generational war, if you, if you like, that exists on paper, but they can't extricate themselves from it without doing damage to themselves. Because if they suddenly start saying, okay, we're going to give more rights to renters, we're going to build loads of new houses, we're going to allow councils the freedom to build new council and social housing, then they can do all of that. But younger people have memories. Hmm. They know if your formative experience is about, you know, being on a zero hours contract and being able to earn barely enough to pay off your rip-off landlord, then, you know, 15 years down the line, just because you've got a nice new car or you're able to afford a house at last, that you're going to forget what the Conservatives did to you. And this is the big problem that they have. And how do they get into a position where they have such, what feels like such an elementary problem? Like Thatcher understood that you need to be able to bring people in. Like she, she allowed people to own property. Mm. Then they got massive support from people who otherwise would have been working class labour supporters. Mm -hmm. And so these feels like tr truisms, you know, if the Conservative Party come in and just oppress the working class, mm. causes more support amongst Labour, mm. Labour get back in and that pendulum swings. Yeah. Across the 20th century, that was understood. Mm. Those principles haven't gone away. So have the Conservatives either got themselves into a political situation where they can't manoeuvre in that way mm. or just seem to have forgotten what feel like the basics of their mm. political system? 
It's, I suppose it's about the um, generational replacement within the Tory party itself. When you look at the people who are frontline politicians now, none of them were frontline politicians in Thatcher's day. The people that are left over from Thatcher's day, people like Ken Clark and Michael Heseltine, no, they've been told quite clearly that they're not welcome mm-hmm. in Labour Party, in, sorry, in the Conservative Party anymore. I'm sure there are some people in the Labour Party who would welcome <laughs> them into, into the fold. Um, but, and so those lessons haven't been transmitted. They have not been passed down to them. And so, and you, you, you see this in industrial relations as well, where lots of managers positively shit themselves when workers decide to take strike action. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason is because they've, you know, they've gone through management school where industrial relations is just, you know, probably an obscure optional module in the third year at five to eight on a Friday night. Yeah. Um, no one bothers about that anymore. So those kind of lessons, those sorts of the, the lessons of the Thatcher years that the ruling class effectively relearned about how to use the state effectively to batter down organised labour, they've gone. That, those lessons have, have fallen on deaf ears. And also when you think about when you're a conservative, if you're a conservative politician now, how you entered into politics would have been through, you know, you've had some jobs somewhere and you would have gone to an association meeting, you'd have greased the palms of the regional organiser or some patrons that you might have further up the tree. And you would have learned how to work the association and to get selected. Now that's, you know, that's quite, useful skill I suppose being able to persuade people but you haven't had a direct experience of managing things or dealing with the realities of you know operating a firm operating a business or or whatever and also for a lot of conservative politicians as well bear in mind that nearly all of them if not all of them came of age before 2015 where politics between say the passing of Margaret Thatcher in 1990, passing from the political scene, not actual passing of Margaret Thatcher, all the way up until 2015, about 25 years of, of politics has, has been around, the, the fundamentals have been you know, settled, neoliberal consensus, the market's rule, private is better than public. And so they've accepted that as their, if you like, their baseline. Hmm. They've never questioned it. And so when you move into a situation where struggle is ramping up, where there are going to be more strikes over the next years, if the Conservatives get in, I fully expect there'll be riots as well. They do not know how to respond to that. Mm. It's just outside of their experience. And so I think this is one facet as to why the Tories are kind of in this strange sort of space where they're offering very little because they've never had to offer that. They haven't offered a great deal since 1990. So it's the, the neoliberal consensus that surrounds them mm. in their office. Yeah. They forget that there might be people anywhere else in the country who don't accept those baseline principles. Yeah, that's right. It's their common sense. And of course, that's reinforced by Westminster. Mm. It's reinforced by Westminster in which many Conservative MPs will have discussions with their Labour opposite numbers because it is a chummy club. And they'll find that, oh, you know, our Labour, some of the Labour people, you know, they're all right. You know, they've just got some, in their view, some iffy views about certain things, mm-hmm. but they'll get, they'll get on. And a lot of those Labour MPs, well, until relatively recently, yeah. would have had fairly similar views about mm-hmm. the state of things. When if you're, say, for example, if you're a Conservative representing a South Nottinghamshire constituency, I'm sure that you find yourself getting on quite nicely with 
the beloved Chris Leslie, mm-hmm. who of, uh, of the uh, Independent Group for Change or whatever they call themselves these days. Because, you know, you know, apart from the different party label, what is the difference between Chris Leslie and the average Tory? Mm-hmm. There isn't any. You know, that reinforces itself. And that also reinforces the composition and the ideological touchstones of the Tory party as well. And who currently would you say are the Corbyn base? What would you say is like the demography mm. of who currently is part of the Corbyn, not just the Corbyn movement, but like safe Labour supporters? Yeah. And who are the people who we would need to bring into that, the likely convertibles? Yeah. Well, it's young, young people generally, because regardless of... Um, of background now I'm kind of really hedging this now <laughs> but okay I say young, young people generally partly because of they're at the sharp end of a lot of things that the Tories are doing both through education going to university and lack of um, opportunities for those who do not go down the university route then they know that they've those that do go to university have got a huge uh, bundle of debt they can look forward to those who don't go to university, you know, they can look forward to doing some shitty apprenticeships somewhere and getting, you know, a job that has very few prospects. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's the whole issue around property acquisition as well. So most young people. Um, also, as you kind of, anyone that is sort of locked out of the property market generally is a place where Labour will certainly find votes. Mm-hmm. But also you'll find it as well in the kind of layers of middle class people who are very closely associated with the public sector. Mm-hmm. So obviously I know quite a bit about university lecturers being one of them. Yeah. But if you look at like NHS managers or um, civil servants or people who are you know, up till quite senior grades in local councils, for instance, these are people who in the past would certainly have voted Liberal Democrat. Some of them certainly would have voted uh, Conservative, maybe not university lecturers, um, unless they're kind of business related yeah. or science related. Uh, but their experience of nine years worth of austerity and also the culture of precarity that permeates the public sector, that's not going to dispose people uh, very well towards the Conservatives either. So I think that the kind of questions around sort of if you like the sort of the more abstracty stuff the kind of anti-neoliberal stuff that so that where we don't use the uh, the language of cuts class jobs and so on when we talk about quality of life commodification um everything being reduced to the market those kinds of messages those kind of value messages resonate more with those sort those layers of middle middle class people i think now of course those those sorts of layers of middle-class people are also quite well disposed towards the Greens historically mm-hmm. and the Liberal Democrats historically as well. But in this election, this is where the kind of second referendum stuff is crucial to winning winning them over. And this is also is crucial where the green industry stuff yeah. is, is crucial as well. Because whereas you can use the language of green jobs in places like Stoke, so for example, Jeremy Corbyn has promised that Stoke will get a battery factory mm-hmm. 3,000 extra jobs, thank you very much. They're the kind of sustainable manufacturing the country needs more of. But kind of at the values end, I think sort of talking about climate change more generally, talking about 
bio, uh, biodiversity, talking about reforestation, you know, two billion trees. These are things that will be able to bring over and suppress that Liberal Democrat vote and bring mm. people to Labour from kind of the upper end, if you like, of the voter scale. Yeah. It was only last night that the climate debate was on. Mm. The whole tone of the debate seemed so different because the because of who was absent. Mm. Boris Johnson wasn't there. Nigel Farage. They weren't present because unknown. So that meant people actually were just talking about climate change mm. and actually competing over having climate change yeah. policies with the exception of Joe Swinson just talked about Brexit. Um, <laughs> we shouldn't talk about squirrels. We talked about hedgehogs. So actually a lot of people are thinking, why hasn't your son seen a hedgehog since he was 10? That's a very concerning. <laughs> um... But Corbyn was the only person who has managed to integrate the green policies. He was able to say, we want to completely change train infrastructure. Yeah. So that's going to be green because people aren't doing, like Joe Swinson admitted she does like uh, international flights all the time. Immediately she has to go like quite a distance. Mm. But even so, that's someone who's flying across the country on a regular basis on a climate change debate. Mm. Whereas Corbyn can go, this is going to affect the economy is going to boost the economy because people can now travel yeah but also train travel becomes an option we mm. integrate it with the Eurostar people can now get to Europe you can travel to Europe without flying now yeah or we are going to put insulation in council housing mm-hmm. this means that we're not going to have lost heat radiating out into mm-hmm. space mm-hmm. but we're also not going to be wasting energy and the bills of the people who live in there are going to go down. So those climate change policies integrate directly into like working class people's quality of yes. life changes. That was like a, such a stark difference between yes. him and all the other parties. Yeah, well, I mean, what's been interesting is watching the uh, evolution of the Greens um, since Corbynism became a thing. Mm. And uh, we've seen it um, how the Greens seem to kind of be adopting more or less a more misanthropic approach to... Uh, to climate change and green policies. So more, in the same way that Joe Swinson went hard remain, they're kind of gone a bit deep ecology, if you like. It is so that they, way, yeah. So they, they talk about, you know, oh, it's the sorts of, I can't, unfortunately, I can't remember a particular example now, but there's one member of the European Parliament who talks about how we need to reduce living standards in order to live sustainably. Um, well, no, you don't need to reduce living standards. You, you can change living standards it's about how you support those living standards living standards can be made more sustainable but not through people deciding to bike to work or you know having a plant-based diet though of course those things are important but um by systemic change of the sort that you've uh, that you've just outlined it's almost like for us as as labor people we understand that climate change to be taken seriously by the bulk of the population We've got to make it a class issue as well. It's got to improve people's lives. Otherwise, it's just seen as another green tax or, mm. or, the, or you know, green crap, as David Cameron once put it. And the, the Greens don't understand this because not obviously not all Greens have uh, like a systematic critique of capitalism, but a lot of them do. And they kind of see not capitalism or the social system as a problem. They see human beings Mm. as a problem. There's too many human beings. That's a problem. If we get rid of more human beings, then um, if we get rid of human beings, then the environment won't be as much of an issue, which, you know, well, how are we going to be the first to be lost? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Have some green gulags or something. Yeah. Getting your solar powered cell or 
We'll just ask them to kill themselves in a, <laughs> a non-petroleum-based way. Well, in that case, I'll say greens first. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the intriguing things about the Tory attack line is to say, let's get Brexit done so we can focus on people's priorities. And when you look at the Tory manifesto, there are no people's priorities in there. So it's a question of, what are you actually going to do if you are in power for four or five years? And it's very unclear because the stuff that's in there is such small beer that they're going to have to start making up stuff to do. So there is dangerous stuff in there. There's dangerous stuff around um, uh, race and immigration because, of course, they want their uh, points-based immigration system, which is not going to lead to abuses at all. They've singled out travellers for particular for special attention in the manifesto. So I think that they're going to be um, stoking up demonisation of travellers as this next parliament's big scapegoats. Mm -hmm. There is um, threats to higher education with a, both in terms of what they see curbing low quality courses. How do you define a low quality course? And also around enshrining free speech on campuses. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that me as a, as a, a Marxist lecturer gets the opportunity to barge into business studies classes yeah. and starts lecturing them on surplus labor and surplus value? Probably not. We sort of get allowing Britain first onto campus or some such nonsense like that. This is news to me. I didn't it's in the manifesto. That's like a Steve Bannon lines. That's yeah, of like, course it is, yeah. That's like come straight from the... Yeah. I think the alt-right abandoned Trump a while ago, but like that was one of their big pushes. That's yeah. like the libertarian American it, right. It is. So I think what they're going to be doing over the course of the next uh, parliament, if they get their majority, is they're going to stake a culture war. That's, yeah. that's what they're going to do. They're not actually going to achieve anything at all. Things will just get steadily worse and they'll hope that by, by staking up a culture war, they'll be able to limp across the line in 2024 or whenever the next general election is. Of course, also, there are measures that they want to bring in to try and ensure that Tories get a majority next time, such as voter identification, taking photo ID to uh, the polling booth. And also the boundary review is coming back as well, which means redrawing the boundaries of all the constituencies. Right. So unsurprisingly, loads of Labour seats disappear yeah. and the it makes it harder for Labour to win a general election. That's definitely coming back. That's in the manifesto. And they will do that if they get their majority. Um, so it's anything, but from my perspective as well, what they seem to be doing is effectively saving off the crisis in the Conservative Party. They know that they've got to rejuvenate themselves, they've got to find ways to appeal to younger voters. And the manifesto is an admission that they're not going to do that and they can't do that. So they're going to, by hook and by crook, find other ways of trying to maintain the Tory party until 2024. And if they win that election, then they'll think about, they'll put off what needs to be done to the future. You know, Boris Johnson probably won't, need to, won't even be there by then. He doesn't need to worry about it. What we're going to see in the next parliament is a culture war, clamp down on freedom and democracy, and also a lot of time wasting. There'll be a lot of Boris Johnson plomping around the world stage, looking, look at me, look at me being Churchillian, I've signed this great trade deal, everything's fine, everything's hunky-dory, um, bish-bash-bosh, and that's going to be it. Though, of course, it'll be interesting to see how keen he will be on a, a trade deal with America if Bernie Sanders wins the president. Yeah, that would be, that would be something. <laughs> 
Yes. We'll see how he sucks up to the Americans then. Mm. Yeah, it's so strange that we've got these two sort of parallels. And I guess Boris Johnson coming across, it's been too quick and too lazy for almost anyone to describe anything they don't like as Trump, you know, over the last mm. like five years. But there's something about the possibility of an upcoming culture war. Mm -hmm. There's something about the... Uh, like the memory holding of everything like that big litany of yeah. lists of things that Boris Johnson has done or said that's like you know according to some journalists hidden away in a spectator article <laughs> uh, that should be I guess this is like this is like Twitter outcry style mm. language but you'd think that you know, of a previous era yeah. that would be a, that would that would sink a politician yeah there is like the tactic learned from from Trump which is if I plough through and also do a new mistake or yeah. reveal a new problem. <laughs> but the scariest thing about that, if you start drawing the parallels, is that a lot of the news media mm. in America hate Trump. And they yeah. don't know how to deal with it. And they go, Trump's just done this. As though like one new gotcha or hypocrisy mm. will make him tweet out, oh, you got me, I'll step down, I'm sorry. <laughs> but there's no point. Mm. There's no point showing to like MAGA hat wearing flag demonstrators. Yeah. Look, he's actually contradicted himself. What, for the 900th time? Yeah. Like, this isn't going to be the straw that broke the camel's back. In America, loads of the news media is against mm. Trump, but we don't have that here. So no. imagine Trump with a highly complicit media mm. is truly terrifying. Yeah, yes, it is. And what we're seeing as well is the fact that both in terms of general norms and in terms of constitutional norms as well, how Boris Johnson has effectively shat on them and with no consequence mm. whatsoever. His, oh, his biggest consequence was he had to write a letter to Brussels. Well, that's gone down the memory hole as well. Yeah. You know, I, I remember arguing, thinking, yes, you know, Labour's got to say no to his general election, so he is forced to write that letter, and that will be, you know, death to the Tories. And it's like people have already forgotten it. Yeah. The um, memory holding is really strong right now. It is. I think that as time goes by, of course, he can't get away with the memory holding forever because there are growing numbers of younger people who absolutely despise the Tories. And that's not going to go away. And they, you know, as they start to age, those people will still have that hatred of the Tories. It's not going anywhere. And meanwhile, those older people that the Tories rely on are slowly, but slowly but surely diminishing. And they're not replacing their votes. So where do they go? What, where do the Tories go mm. if they don't, you know, try to find a way of appealing to younger people in some way? In the long term, they're screwed. But in the short term, it means they can do an awful lot of damage and yeah. really make people's lives not a misery. They can clinch it and just make it slowly more toxic as they're on the way out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So let's end on a brighter note. <laughs> what would a Labour victory Look like. It means a massive party for me <laughs> and for most of us, I imagine. I mean, I kind of look forward to the um, to the exit poll, and if it says something like, again, if it if it's a hung parliament or if it's a Labour majority, heaven forbid, it's like I just can't imagine. The hope would kill me. The hope yeah. is killing me. Um, but what would it be like when the euphoria is, has died down? It's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult because the media will not be as um, placid and as supine as they have been to Johnson. Mm. We will face an onslaught of likes of which no government has ever faced before. 
every little thing about an incoming Labour government will be scrutinised. Every little fault will be picked upon. Every little tiny hypocrisy that hasn't come out yet. There are some, I'll tell you some in a bit. Um, they will, um, you know, these will be amplified. So it's a case of if you think the general election is tough, what we've got coming is going to be tough. But at the same time, there's real hope there because we can use the, the power of the state to start leveraging things. I mean, there are elements of capital as well who are actually quite like Jeremy Corbyn's programme because it's taking the longer view. It's fixing structural inequities in the system, problems at capital. So, for example, the short-termism of British capital is chronic. The infrastructure of this country is awful. And Jeremy Corbyn's plan aims to fix that. And it, by doing so and also putting more money in people's pockets, it creates more commercial opportunities for capital as well. So it will be it will be hard, but we'll be able to see tangible hope. We'll be able to see tangible difference. I know that the uh, the Labour are planning to um, put forward as much as possible, as quickly as possible. But they've taken a lesson from David Cameron's uh, government, where he kind of rammed everything through that he could as quickly as possible in the first six months. And because, of course, we've got the... If Labour win a majority, we've got the Brexit renegotiation and then the deal. Mm -hmm. That means we've got six months, effectively, without any rebellions from any uh, um, awkward uh, Labour members that remain in Parliament. And so we'll see the majority of our programme will probably go through in, in that period. So that means we will see tangible benefits arising from it relatively quickly. But again, we've got to be aware of the media barrage and what's mm-hmm. coming. We've got to be prepared for it. And so, you know, have a nice Christmas, comrades, but <laughs> be prepared to struggle in the new year. Mandatory Redistribution Party was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Our main title theme was recorded by Ella Jean. Normally we'd beg for publicity here, but instead just do what you can to push the Labour vote where you live. Speak to friends, speak to family, canvas if you're able and willing. Do what you can to get these fucking parasites out of Westminster. 